good afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. Broadcasting from the heart of Global China-Africa Research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson. I will be joined by the intrepid Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, as you make your way to Nigeria, do you have any advice for our listeners? Hmm. Go to Africa would probably be my best advice. If you haven't been, you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and we will not cover your your plane ticket though. Just 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 no no. Okay. Unfortunately. <laughs> not 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 now, but maybe in the future. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Oduro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. In our continuation of my bizarre celebration of International Women's Day, yay, International Women's Day, we are examining what it's like being an Asian woman in Africa for the entire month. This week, we will have three guests to share their experience as Asian women scholars who do on-the-ground research in Africa. Professor Yoon Jung Park, convener slash coordinator of the world-famous Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network, who is currently an adjunct at Georgetown with affiliations as Senior Research Associate of the Sociology Department at Rhodes University. We have Solange Guo Shatayad. Did I say that wrong? Shatayad. Shatayad. Solange Guo Shatayad. Is that good enough? Do you want me to go and uh, try it again? Yep. That's great. <laughs> A PhD candidate at the, oh gosh, Institut de <laughs> Politique de Paris, and an associate at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halsall. In Germany. In Germany. <laughs> <laughs> who, whose work studying Chinese communities in Zambia got her a job as production assistant in the film When China Met Africa. And last but not least, Ms. Vivian Liu, a PhD student at Stanford University's Department of Anthropology looking at economic networks linking African merchants to production and trade sites of everyday goods in Asia and Africa. Professor Park, Solange, Vivian, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be back. <laughs> uh, yes, is for, for two of you, this is a, the, an, another time on the pod, I'm, I'm very happy to say, and we haven't, you know, permanently scarred you from the experience. I'd like to also wish you all a very happy International Women's Day. Are you doing anything special for the 8th, uh, Professor Park? I just celebrated International Women's Day with several great friends um, with whom I graduated from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy many, many years ago. And we celebrated um, multiple birthdays that are coming up this spring, including my own next week, as well as the publication of an op-ed by one of my friends, Marsha Greenberg. Ooh. Solidarity. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Solange? I don't actually usually celebrate International Women's Day, but today a very good friend of mine and colleague at the Mosaic Institute uh, from Uzbekistan had a very nice lunch at her place where she invites a group of women colleagues. And it was wonderful from Central Asia mainly, and we had golf, which is a traditional Uzbek dish, and yeah, that's what we did, and it was cool. That that sounds really, really fun. Uh, well, uh, what, about, what about you, Vivian? Oh, um, I've never celebrated before, but I did come to see my mom this weekend, so I'm celebrating her. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Yeah. And for the second time on the pod, I will explain my embarrassing International Women's Day story in which International Women's Day is, is a, you know, a labor holiday and, and, and trying to, in, in China, it's, it's actually a really, a really big deal. It's, uh, women usually get a half day, they get a free meal, usually a, a free lunch. And I, of course, thought it was like a Valentine's Day in China, which it's not. It's, you know, a serious <laughs> labor holiday. So I was dating my wife. Well, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I, you know, got a really nice suit, got flowers, got a reservation at a good restaurant, and I, I showed up to pick her up at work, 
and you know, hey, happy International Women's Day. And my wife just could not stop laughing at me because she could not figure out why the hell I was doing this. <laughs> she thought it was like an American celebration of International Women's Day. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. That's cute. So, well done, Winslow. <laughs> Uh, well, so you guys definitely celebrated it, you know, much better than I ever did. And and we are celebrating it here on the pod by telling women's stories. So, yes, solidarity. How, could could you each tell us a little bit about what you were up to and, and how you each know each other? And we'll start with you, Vivian. Sure. I'm, uh, well, you gave the bio above or earlier. Uh, right now, I'm actually just studying for my qualifying exams. I'll be beginning my dissertation research starting in August in Lagos, mostly. But I've done two years of preliminary fieldwork uh, over the last two summers. And I know uh, Solange from a workshop, a China-Africa academic workshop that was held in Dakar. And uh, Professor Yoon, I met, I'm actually not sure, but it feels like I've known her forever. <laughs> <laughs> So somewhere along the way, I met her. Um, it maybe was at the a AAA conference. African Bay Studies Area. Association meeting? I'm not sure. Oh, AAA, that's what it was. Yeah, so the American Anthropological Association meeting. Must have been two years ago. Fantastic. And what, what, Area. What about you, Professor Park? Yeah, I met Vivian at a AAA conference in the Bay Area several years ago, and I'm trying to remember. Solange and I met in Manchester. Manchester, in England. There was a conference many, many, many years ago, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to ride the train back down to London with Solange and her mother. It was fascinating. <laughs> And then I um, convinced her that she needed to come to another conference that was held in Singapore, I think the following year. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been dragging her around to conferences with me because I, she's amazing and I love her work. Thank you. Okay, well, so, Solange, you're you going to close this out? Well, I mean, I think it's all been said, really. Yeah, it's all been said. <laughs> then, then we'll move on. In this episode, as in the last, we wanted to discuss topics that almost never come up in the China-Africa discussion, gender, race, and perception. And by discuss, we mean that I will clumsily ask questions about race, class, and gender, and we can throw intersectionality in there as well. Uh, we have broached these topics before, but we wanted to get a really meaty discussion involving as many voices as we could find. To the end, we have actual Asian women on the podcast. So let's get to it. And yes, almost all of these questions are the same as last week. Would you kindly tell us about your backgrounds? Answer that question any way you wish. And we'll start with you, Solange. Um, my background. Well, I was born in London and I'm a French father and a Chinese mother. And um, yeah, I went to a French school. Um, I spoke Chinese at home. And was sort of surrounded by English society in a way and um, studied international relations at university in London and then I moved gradually towards um, issues of reform development in contemporary China and then from there uh, expanded my interest to, to Africa and now I'm working on yeah China Africa uh, China Africa relations through the specific case of Zambia Wow. All right. Well, how about you, Vivian? Um, yeah, I'm Chinese-American. I was born in the U.S. in Baltimore. I grew up in Colorado. And in undergraduate, um, I, I studied African studies. And I guess how I got to start uh, researching on the uh, African merchants who are going to China was I was in Tanzania for a Swahili program one summer. And just people would ask me every once in a while, oh, hey, you know, you're Chinese. Do you know any, like, factories or any people I could talk to? <laughs> and I didn't know any, um, but I thought it was really interesting that people wanted to ask me those kinds of things. So I ended up following up on that. Yeah, but I'm, uh, I guess, Chinese-American. For our listeners, do you own a factory that they can work at? I don't, but I might <laughs> in the next few years. You never know. 
good to hear. So stay tuned, listeners. Uh, we got the hookup. Uh, Professor Park? I am Korean-American. I was born in Seoul. My family moved to the States when I was only five, and I grew up in Los Angeles. I actually thought I would be a Latin Americanist when I grew up, and that obviously didn't happen, though I speak fluent Spanish. Um, when I was at the Fletcher School studying for my master's in international relations, my area of focus was, in fact, Latin America, and I did a master's thesis on Mexican politics. Um, ended up in South Africa, um, where I was meant to be only for two or three years because of my then fiancé, now husband, um, and we're going on, I think, 19 years together now, married, Aww. even longer than that, that we've been together. So I ended up um, moving to Africa in 1995, in January, and um, living there um, until the summer of 2010. So what was meant to be two to three years ended up much, much longer. Um, our daughter was born in Nairobi, Kenya. And she's waving at me in the background. Mm -hmm. um, she grew up in South Africa. We moved there when she was, we moved back there from uh, Nairobi when she was only about 18 months old. So I've only been back in the U.S. for going on four years. And yeah, um, my in terms of my research interests, I had been working in development on women's issues in South Africa for a while. And I decided to go back and get my PhD. And um, as I was searching around for a, a good research topic that would keep me engaged for long enough to actually finish it, um, I ended up looking at the Chinese South African community, which is the smallest minority community in South Africa with roots in that country going back to the 1600s. And because so few people knew that there were Chinese in Africa, um, I thought it would be worthwhile looking at this community and and looking at issues of their own identity, how they saw themselves, how, how um, South Africans viewed them, particularly in light of the um, political changes that were taking place in South Africa with the ending of apartheid. And uh, so it was fairly easy for me to segue from looking at Chinese South Africans to looking at new Chinese migrants who were arriving on the continent um, as I was completing my PhD in the mid-2000s. I was going to ask, and I think if you could just answer in reverse order, that would be fantastic. Do you feel that your background affects the way that you were perceived in the different African countries in which you did research? And could you elaborate on that and provide some examples, please? Okay, I'll go ahead and start. This yep. is Yoon Park again. So in most African countries, if you look like us, like me, then you're Chinese automatically. I, I used to turn red trying to explain to people that I was Korean-American and nobody knew what that was or what that meant. When I said I was born in Korea, people asked me, oh, what part of China is that? <laughs> and after a while, I stopped taking offense. Now, if the same kinds of um, responses hit me from Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles, I would certainly engage myself in a corrective conversation. But in South Africa, at the time, it, I, I realized quite quickly that it was just based out of ignorance and that most people who were in Africa who looked like me were in fact Chinese. So that was kind of, I, I for nearly 20 years, I have been kind of quote unquote Chinese. And I joked around at the first presentation that I gave when I came back here that I've recently become Korean American again. This is Vivian. I, uh, let's see. well, as I said before, how I, I guess got to even my research topic was inspired by how people were reacting to me and asking me about China. Uh, and so in that way it's affected, I guess, even the types of things that people want to talk to me about when I'm there. Now I work in Lagos and there's, there is a Chinese community there. Uh, although I'm not doing research specifically with them, I get a lot of Chinese people approaching me and talking to me. And it's actually been a really amazing research support almost for me, uh, kind of building community outside of just my academic work, things that are directly related to my academic work. So people give me rides all the time or invite me to dinner and that kind of thing. And it makes research and people who are there 
uh, sometimes social science work can be somewhat lonely or alienating depending on the kind of work you're doing, but having uh, different, I guess, Chinese friends around, a lot of people are quite concerned with the fact that I'm a young Chinese woman by myself. Uh, and so they're often checking up on me and telling me if I ever get into any trouble, they should, I should call them up or if I need a ride, that kind of thing. And I usually don't take them up on it too much, but it's been definitely a big part of just kind of feeling at home wherever, wherever I've been going. Beautiful. Yeah, I would agree with Vivian. I think in my experience in Zambia and several other countries in the region, I think particularly with the Chinese community, you know, who I was spending a lot of time with, I think I, more than anything, more than my identity or more than my background, I think the fact that I was an unmarried, so therefore single woman who was sort of unaccompanied, trolling about <laughs> Zambia was sort of more striking, was something that was more, yeah, interesting or, you know, to them. And I think, yeah, it was a combination of factors because I'm, I'm mixed, you know, and so it was the fact that I was, I didn't really fit into any category. I was not really married or single because I had a partner. I'm not really Chinese or European because I'm mixed. And I'm this PhD student, so I'm not yet in the job market, so I don't have you know, a, a particular professional status that they can identify me with, like a group. Uh, a, yeah, I don't represent a particular set of interests that they can identify. So it was a sort of blurry, confusing person. But I guess it was also was a great pretext to start interesting conversations with different people. And um, <laughs> it got the conversation going on levels that I think probably wouldn't have your discussions that started to unfold, which might not have. Yeah, and it led to to a lot of interesting and valuable friendships. I, I was just going to say, I find that, I mean, in, in my case, as a Korean-American doing research on Chinese in Africa, the fact that I don't fit into any of those boxes either can be a little bit disarming. And I think in my case, it, it gives you great access in some ways greater access than if you did fit into one of those boxes you know in my case i think that i look familiar enough so that most chinese people you know figured i was one of them but i wasn't chinese and i wasn't a chinese from a particular region um, who spoke a particular dialect and you know so because they didn't really know where I was coming from, and yet I looked familiar. It was easier for them to, to open up to me. And I think in many ways, both with the Chinese South Africans as well as with Chinese migrants, that kind of, kind of, sort of fits in, but not really aspect was actually really helpful in terms of doing research and sitting down and talking to people. That, that, that little bit of disarming them I, I, I used to my advantage um, as much as I could. Yeah, I would say, for example, in Lagos, um, especially where I was going, there weren't really any, I would say, white expats in those regions, in those different markets. And there were occasionally Chinese people. So it was interesting because I didn't stand out enough that if I went to a market, there wouldn't be, I guess, people approaching me, you know, just curious why I'm there or anything like that. In fact, I think there are quite a few young Chinese women who are working as translators for different uh, companies, mostly small businesses. And so in that way, I didn't stick out, which I think was really helpful. I could take public transportation and everything and feel relatively comfortable. And at the same time, I think being a young woman as well, and I wear glasses, <laughs> I usually wear braids when I'm in the field, just like two pigtails. A lot of the time, I think people feel compelled to be like, oh, you're a student, like, sit down, let me, let me explain to you what's going on. And even though, honestly, you know, usually you know most of what they're saying, but then it allows you to ask more questions after that. But there's something, yeah, there that was uh, quite helpful, I guess, for me in being able to move around the city as someone kind of clearly not from there, but someone not particularly remarkable. Then... How, how does your treatment in Johannesburg or Lusaka or Lagos compare to back home, wherever home is? I'm not really sure. This is Vivian. I'm not really sure hmm, how much it 
differed. I think one thing that was really interesting was this summer when I was in China and, and Dubai and then Lagos, and I was working with Nigerians the whole time. Trayvon Martin, the Trayvon Martin case had just happened in the U.S., and people kept asking me about it. And I thought it was really interesting because when I say um, I'm Chinese-American or things like that, I've had people directly ask me after, right after just saying, oh, do they, how do they treat your people in the United States? Or how, how are you received in the U.S.? Is it like the black Americans? And so it was really interesting for me this summer how much the case of Trayvon Martin kept coming up. It was in the news a lot, I think, as well. But people were asking me, is it really like that for black people still in the U.S.? What's it like for you? And so I think they were asking these questions. I mean, I think part of it was they felt comfortable enough knowing that I also was probably not, I guess, the average white American to ask these kinds of questions because they were still curious about what America was like. And then as for treatment in the U.S., I mean, people here ask me where I'm from often <laughs> beyond, you know, Colorado when I answer. So in that way, it's, yeah. For our listeners, what does it mean when you are asked where are you from here in the oh, U.S.? Oh, um, well, in the U.S., for many Asian Americans, when you say, people ask you where you're from quite often. And, you know, usually you'll answer whatever city you lived in or wherever you were born usually an American city. And then people will just keep asking where, 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 until you kind of identify some Asian country that they're able to then say, oh, okay, okay. Then they understand you now that they've known, you know, your, where your racial background's from. So that's kind of, yeah, the background of that. <laughs> Is that right, Yoon? I don't know. Maybe that was... Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Have you guys seen that YouTube video with the um, Asian American um, actress and, and um, white guy? And he keeps saying really slowly, no, where are you from? Yeah, Expecting exactly. a different answer instead of saying I'm from San Francisco or Los Angeles or Colorado. No, I think it's, it, it's interesting. I, even within the United States, it depends where, right? I mean, growing up in California, there are lots of people who look like me and sound like me. Um, living in Africa for such a long time, it's interesting that people respond to you initially because of your looks, right? I mean, it's all physical. So I look like I'm Chinese, and so they'll try to speak to me or say something to me. I've had people say, ni hao. I've had people speak to me in Japanese. I've had people put their hands together and do a little prayer bow, which is a typical Thai greeting. Um, but somehow in, you know, on the streets of Johannesburg, somebody picked this up and this is how I've been kind of just greeted on the streets. And then I say, no, no, I'm American. And then things shift slightly. Oh, and I, and I think in most of Africa, they don't expect an American to look like me or like Vivian. You know, an American is typically white, maybe black, but certainly not Asian. And so there's this you can see it in their faces as they have to try to shift gears and, and try to figure out where to put you. I lived in Boston for a time, and there are a lot fewer Asian Americans there uh, as compared to California. And I had a little bit more of the, well, where are you from? And, you know, they don't want to hear Los Angeles. They want to hear Korea. And so it it really is... It varies depending on what city, and I think it's varied. It's changed a lot over time. Um, I think in America, there's so much of this politic political correctness and you know sensitivity around how to ask these things and how to ask them in a way that's not offensive. And in Johannesburg, you didn't have any of that. I mean, people just assumed you were Chinese, and when you try to correct them, like I said earlier, there were these. So, what part of China is Korea? <laughs> I don't. I grew up in London, which is quite a diverse um, place, and I was very lucky to have gone to a, an in, well, a French school, but it was full of international people who were all sort of half Lebanese, half German, or you know, Algerian French, or Jamaican Ghanaian, or so. No one really paid much attention to at least at school paid much attention to where we came from and it was more about who are you as a person and that sort of was very very strong and in a way has influenced me in how I feel about myself and so I guess 
I don't know if, I don't think people treated me any different in but one thing that did strike me though was that when I was when I was walking you know in the streets of Zambia there was never any doubt for the locals at least that I was Chinese so people would shout at me you know across the street same thing they would sort of probably do in Vietnam and I thought it was really interesting because you know you know where people don't really figure, figure, really know where I'm from. They ask me if I'm am I Mexican, am I Brazilian, am I Indian? I got one like, are you Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought, wow. I'm like, what do Canadians look like? <laughs> but like in Zambia, what, you know, what I found interesting was that in in the eyes of the locals. Or they could really distinguish, you know, Asian features, or they were used to seeing a particular type of physical features. It's about how you treat people at the end of the day, and how you talk to people, and how willing to listen to them. Any anybody want to add to that about differentiating between Asian people? I, in Lagos, it's quite interesting. People come up to me and they say, "Oh, are you Malaysian? Are you Thai?" My sister-in-law is Malaysian, and I was like, "Oh, no, I'm not," but that's interesting. And apparently, a lot of Nigerians go to Malaysia, especially for education or higher education. And so, I've gotten different. I've gotten into different conversations of being, "Oh, well, why is your why is your sister-in-law Thai?" And then they'll say, "Oh, you know, my brother went there for importing this, that, and the other." So it's been interesting because it actually opens up quite a few conversations about what's going on uh, between Nigeria and other parts of the world, especially in Asia. Just from which you just get from people asking you if you're a specific Asian country that they happen to know a lot about. Dang. So who's a typical foreigner in the American European Academy and how do you compare to him or her? And I will let Solange answer that question. <laughs> um, I think if we're talking about academe, for me, who's maybe a typical foreigner, I don't know if that's the right word, but I guess would be someone who's versed in canons that are different from the ones that we're taught in the traditional um, Western social sciences. I can only speak of the social sciences because that's why I study. Um, so people who I guess, in, it might also be a paradox, maybe there isn't, uh, some, you know, maybe there really isn't a, a whole canon which is different to, to Western social science because it isn't by definition born perhaps in, in the West or in Europe. So it would be someone who is used to a different lineage of concepts, um, a different genealogy of problems um, and issues that they've tackled in different ways, using different resources. I'm not that interested in nationalities as much or even the location of the university, I guess. But yeah, someone who, you know, I mean, otherwise everybody's, talking the same language. I mean, I guess that's what the objective of academe is, is to create a platform where there can be a collective effort in developing common concepts that can be applied to different situations. But ultimately, we're working with similar concepts, concepts even if we're criticizing them and challenging them. But it sort of somehow still brings people from different horizons together to discuss common issues. So I guess a real foreigner, you know, would be someone who kind of trained in a very different set of ideas, rooted in a very different um, intellectual tradition. I guess that would be a foreigner for me. I was just curious, and Kim, is that what you were getting at? I'm not sure I understood the question. So when we asked this question last week, we were particularly interested in looking at the whole idea of a foreigner. I think the term Muzungu, if you've been in East, um, East and like Southern Africa, and for I think with with the group that we'd spoken with last week, when they went to the different countries in Eastern Africa that they had visited in and worked in, they were being treated as foreigners, as Muzungus, and so they were talking a little bit about that experience and um, how for them the typical foreigner was was your Caucasian individual and not so much the Asian. And then there was essentially talking about the, you know, the new norm of having this new Asian foreigner, this new Asian Musungu, and 
um, how people related with that and how they, whether or not they fit into that mold as a foreigner, whether they, they did the things that were expected of foreigners or if they, they were kind of different. Well, one thing in Lagos I know that I thought was interesting was actually there are quite a few Chinese, young Chinese people teaching at the Confucius Institute in Lagos. And so the foreigner that people thought I was was often a Chinese teacher. Um, and so they would, any of the students who knew any Chinese would approach me and just try and speak in Chinese um, as they would to any of the Confucius Institute teachers. I know there have been quite a few, although not that many uh, American or European social scientists coming to Nigeria. There haven't been that many super recently. Uh, I think there were a lot in the 80s and 70s. But, and then there was the kind of whole dis dictatorship era, I guess. At least for American academia, that's kind of where it dropped off a bit. But I've met quite a few of the, I guess, white students that do come to Nigeria. And honestly, walking around with them is quite difficult. I realize how different of a street experience it is being in Lagos as a I guess, as a, as a white person. So in that way, the foreigner, I guess, I'm associated with are these Confucius, young Confucius Institute teachers that come for about one to three years, I believe. Some of them even have stayed longer if they liked it. And so, yeah, it's, that's a whole other dynamic. I mean, I am going to be affiliated with the University of Lagos next year for my research. And even as I was doing it, the deans were very interested if I could help tutor or... Um, hold review sessions in Chinese, not as an official teacher, but as just a something that as a st graduate student, I could contribute to the university. So that was a big dynamic for me, at least as a Chinese American researcher in Lagos. So I have a couple anecdotes that I wanted to share about this notion of foreign and foreigner in, um, in Africa. My husband and a number of our friends and colleagues work in development in Africa, and many of them go into, I mean, quote unquote, in mm. Faso and, and places. And one of the fascinating shifts that I've noticed over the last five years or so is that increasingly the most significant other, if you will, again in quotation marks, foreign person in many of these places, particularly where they're, you know, really um, rural or unreached by um, other foreign influences is that these mostly white American or European development consultants have been have come back out of these situations and said, someone just asked me if I was Chinese or they, they called me Chinese, that, that the most widely seen or known foreign or other person now in many of these places in Africa is actually Chinese and not white. So that Mzungu no longer looks white, European or American, but is Chinese. And I've been hearing this more and more from people who particularly who work in places that are kind of more untouched, if you will. So that, that's the first kind of anecdote. The second is my experience before I went back to do my PhD. I also did some work in rural development consulting. And my first consulting job was with the Development Bank of Southern Africa. It was under a German-funded um, project doing participatory research in the northern province in South Africa. And again, this was a, a place where very few people who weren't actually Sutus, Basutu, uh, or Swanas actually, were had ever gone. So I was coordinating a group of young local field researchers and going out to some of these villages with them. And I had little kids chasing me around and pointing at me and calling me white. And um, one of them came right up to me and, and, and shouted, old and the beautiful, <laughs> as in the soap opera. And for someone who grew up as a Korean American in Los Angeles, being called white, and particularly in a post-apartheid context, was a bit of an, uh, an insult. But clearly for them, that was their term. They were essentially calling me a mazungu, or in, in the Sutu language, lohoa, which means foreigner. I was the outsider, and the only term that they had for that in English was white. So I guess my, my point, here is only that, you know, these 
identifiers really depend on time and the place, and they shift. Yeah, I certainly would agree, and I think that I, in the case of Zambia, I didn't come across the equivalent of Zungu for the Chinese, or at least I was certainly not called, you know, a local term that specifically designated Chinese. I mean, they would just be saying Chinese, but yeah, I think you're right. They do shift, they do change, and I think that the arrival, or the you know, of of, of this relatively large demographic group of Chinese people that might create new, these new terms. But, you know, most of East Africa and Southern Africa is used to, you know, they, they have had Asian communities living, you know, in these parts of the, of the world for, for, for quite a while. So they're used to Asian populations, maybe not Chinese or East Asian, but certainly Indian, yeah, the Indian subcontinent. I'm actually going to jump in and ask Solange, um, were you actually ever called Muzungu in Zambia? And I'm asking this because we have a slight, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We both have a similar background. I worked on a documentary in Zambia three years ago. I grew up in Zambia many, many years ago. And while I was doing that, I was referred to in, in Lusaka, just outside of Lusaka, in a little um, township, and I can't remember what it's called anymore. But um, on the same day, people thought that, well, first, a group of kids called me Muzungu and kept calling me Muzungu, and I am black, African, there's no mistaking <laughs> my heritage. But interestingly enough, the older generation thought that I was actually from Eastern province in Zambia because I was a little <laughs> bit lighter in complexion than your typical Zambian, which is also hilarious to me because I'm not Zambian. Yeah. But um, <laughs> have you, were you ever referred to or called Muzungu yeah, while you were in Zambia? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, of course, I was called Muzungu at you know, various occasions. But again, I think it's because, yeah, I was not black. You know, I think a lot of people who were not, well, in my case, I felt that a lot of people who were just not black were called, yeah, Zungu. But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, you know, you have the signifier and what you're signifying. So the signifier is Zungu, but what it signifies is different according to who's calling you the name. And, yeah, I guess kind of got used to it. It was quite touching, actually at times. And um, yeah, I wore it proud. I'm a Mzungu, so what? <laughs> I actually got a t-shirt with Mzungu written on it, which I really like. But... <laughs> <laughs> nice. What is the one thing that you want to let other Asian women know about living and working in an African country? I, it, it's interesting because I have a number of students right now who are thinking about going to Africa and their parents are quite concerned um, about issues of safety and security. I think, again, Africa is not one place. It's 54 different countries. It really depends on where someone is going to be going. And I think I would have the same advice for any young person or, or you know, Asian woman or man. Um, that they do some homework to know where it is that they're going and and, uh, and kind of find out about living um, accommodation and food and transportation challenges and issues. But I, I think if, if we hearken to Vivian's stories and, and Solange's, you know, being a single Asian woman in, in many of these towns actually elicits a, a lot of assistance and help and sympathy. Um, I think there are lots of people who are concerned and um, would be willing to jump to assistance. So in some ways, it's there are forces out there. <laughs> and also, as Solange said earlier, it's um, not quite as uncommon a phenomenon anymore. There are lots of single Asian women who are traveling and living and working in many African cities now, either as translators for private sector or state-owned enterprises, teaching at various Confucius institutes, or, you know, on their own as, as independent migrants. Many of the women that we interviewed had decided on their own to move to Africa to try to um, earn some money and because they wanted to have a different experience. So I don't think it's the same kind of experience that they might have had 10 or 15 years ago. There is a lot more, in most places, there's a lot more exposure to people who look like us. It's not a horrible, dangerous place necessarily. But I would also, you know, go in prepared. 
Yeah, I guess it's funny asking me for advice because I feel like I'm not really qualified to give it, but in light of Yoon's encouragement um, <laughs> on International Women's Day to give advice or to be bolder, I guess I would kind of say something similar, which is there are a lot of interlapping, separate, different types of communities that exist wherever you go. And of course, wherever you go in Africa will be different. But I think something as an Asian woman, if if there happens to be a Chinese community where you are, even if you're not specifically researching that, I think it's well worth it's well worth your time to get to know the different communities around you. And so for me, again, it's not been directly a part of my research, but it's been a really, really fruitful part of just my living as a researcher abroad, um, getting to know Chinese people there, what their hopes for the future are, what their dreams are, what they're trying to get out of living here for, living there for a few years, for a decade, who knows. But it's something that can really only enrich your research experience and get a really, it gives you a really complex picture of what is going on economically, socially, in any of the places you're going. And that nothing that you're studying locally is, is confined to that specific geographic place, of course. But, you know, there's remittance, there's money, there's goods, there's people that are moving all over. And so getting to know as many aspects of wherever you are, I think will will definitely complicate any any picture or pre-assumptions you have of, of a place, which can only be, I think, good for your research. I would agree with what Vivian and Yoon said. And I might just to kind of finish off is that the women that I, the Chinese women that I met in Zambia were just as driven, if not more driven, than any other person who was living in Africa. And I think, I think it ultimately depends on what your interests are and what your objectives are and what your horizons are. I don't, I, like, like Vivian, I don't know if I can really, if I'm really qualified to give anybody advice on what to do in, in Zambia. But of course, you know, doing a bit of homework is useful, knowing that there will be people that you can count on who will be, you know, willing to reach out for help, as Yoon mentioned. But also, you know, to, to, to watch your back. You do have to also watch your back a little bit. Obviously, depending on which part, which areas you're working in. One piece of advice for any sort of single ladies who want to spend a lot of time on the copper belt, you know, it's, yeah, you know, and be careful. <laughs> Because it's, I remember when the first time I went out to Zambia on my own, a lot of people were concerned and thought, you know, watch out, be careful, this and that. But I found out that, you know, you'll find generally a lot of the problems that you'll face will be, will, will come up or will emerge within the community that you're working with. So in my mm -hmm. case, you know, I got both the best kind of help and the biggest challenges from working within the Chinese community you know, working with Chinese themselves. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's it, really. Go, as uh, Nikam said earlier, you know, just go to Africa and check it out. <laughs> that is excellent advice. Well, let's move on to recommendations. So, Professor Park, how about we start with you? I was going to recommend an article written by uh, one of the members of the network, Cornelia uh, schiller Tremen. just had her first piece um, based on her PhD research published. It's about Chinese in Madagascar. It's called Temporary Chinese Migration to Madagascar, Local Perceptions, Economic Impacts, and Human Capital Flows published in the African Review of Economics and Finance and actually came out in December of last year. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I know Cornelia and I've read other things that she's written and this is the kind of research I think I like to encourage where she's she embedded herself in Madagascar for a long time. She knows the community and she knows a lot of the context really well. So it's um, the kind of research that stems from really in-depth knowledge um, and, and a commitment to a community um, and, and getting to know all aspects of, of what's going on. So, yes, that's what I would recommend. This is Vivian. I would recommend checking out a novel that was written last year, I believe, called Ghana Must Go. It's about a Nigerian Ghanaian family um, and the kids kind of moved to the U.S. And this is slightly related, but the son in the U.S., 
is with a Chinese American girl. And so it's only a small part of the novel, but it's an interesting dynamic to see it. The most important part, we'll call it. <laughs> to, see, to see how it's grappled with in fiction. And who is the author? Tayo Selassie. Perfect. Yeah, no, I, I've heard really good things about that book. I've actually, unfortunately, never read it. But now it's on the recommendation list, so I probably should read it soon. Solange? I don't have anything to recommend about women, but I think if a, a, a great novel that I read about the Chinese in Africa that remains, I think, one of the best reads is a novel written by the travel writer Paul Theroux. I think he published it in the 60s or the 70s, and it's called Fong and the Indians. And it's just hilarious. And his insight and his descriptions and his stories are just so relevant today. And I won't tell you any more because it'll spoil it. But yeah, Fong and the Indian, also a good read. Perfect, man. I'm so happy we're actually going with novels. Novels will get a lot of love on this podcast. So thank you both. And, you know, also thank you, Professor Park, for recommending, you know, serious academic research, which... I I don't recommend that as much as I should. <laughs> Luke Patty's book, that's another book. If you want some serious research, um, one of our members, I think, the AC member, Luke Patty, has just written a wonderful book, I think, about... Well, uh, I think he was on... Um, he was on the China-Africa oh, Project podcast. Right, he he is going to yeah. be on this podcast, too, because I'm going to... Yeah, I, but I don't want to invite him until I read the book. Yeah, I think he's doing wonderful, wonderful research and, yeah, a, a valuable contribution to the field. Uh, on the Sudan? Yeah, on oil extraction, CNPC. Dr. Kalu, what, what about you? You have your recommendation? So in typical me style, I'm going to recommend something that's probably a little offensive. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> no, but it's hilarious. It was on CNN in Kenya. They have a new show. It, it's not on TV yet, but it's available online. It's called The Samaritans, and it's like a mockumentary of aid groups and all the ridiculously politically incorrect things that they do. And it starts out with a young white American college graduate that's underexperienced and winds up in Kenya as the manager of the aid-to-aid office, and then it continues to explore lots of other political incorrectness, and it's hilarious. So the CNN article about it and the link to the actual TV show, that's my recommendation. That, that, hey, that's not, too, that's, that's not that offensive. Thank you. I, <laughs> no, I'm not going to edit that out. Ah, thank you, Dr. Kalu, for your, for your restraint. <laughs> my recommendation is by a former guest on this podcast, Jacob Kushner. He wrote this piece for Think Africa Press called Risky Business. Is China Wavering in Africa? Now... The title is a little, you know, a little exaggeration, but I, I just love that, you know, Risky Business, you know, Tom Cruise 80s movies, so I, I told him you should be, you know, the next one should be Top Gun or All the Right Moves or The Color of Money, but, <laughs> uh, but anyways, I, I, like this, I like this piece because it actually kind of shows sort of the limits of these huge China, uh, Chinese projects in Africa where a lot of time you read about, you know, a hundred million dollars here or nine billion dollars there and you're like, wow, you know, it, it, this, it, nothing's like it. But he, he looks at only three, uh, yeah, I think three projects in different countries and sort of the the limits of these projects the, the face and how they're actually not going through as planned. And if you're interested in sort of China-Africa relations it, I, I like it because not everything is as smooth as a as a as a Xinhua press release states so I'll put it to you that way and yes and I just like the, the title and, and Jacob Kushner is a cool guy before we sign off how do people find you on the interwebs do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us we'll start with you Solange um, no I'm not very good with media I don't think I don't, I don't have a blog and I don't have a Twitter account, but yeah, I have a, an email. <laughs> Are we allowed to share your email, or is that you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's online anyway, so yeah, I think people can find it if they need to. They need anything. Perfect, and then then yes, and and yeah, Solange is notorious for uh, media unfriendliness, so that's. <laughs> Well, that's why we love you. That's why I love you. It's, it's not unfriendliness. It's just I, I don't understand it yet. 
<laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, what about you, Vivian? I am. I also don't have a website besides my department one at uh, Stanford. And this is terrible, but I don't even remember my Twitter handle. This tells you how much I use it. Hold on. <laughs> yes, I gave you a little. I gave you a little pepper for, like, following me on Twitter after like months of like. Oh, I just found it. It's the morning snows. It's it's one of the best Twitter handles I've ever seen. I, I you should be proud uh, of it. It's, it's actually my middle name in Chinese. Morning snow. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. That one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and yeah, do you want to tell people about your other, you know, website thing or, or not? I also work on another website called Microaggressions. And we blog about race, gender, and sexuality mostly in the U.S. Uh, it's not really related to China, Africa things at all, but um, mostly U.S. based about, yeah, identity and everyday, everyday experiences. Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? I can be found, I blog at nkemkalu.wordpress.com infrequently, but I do have a blog that um, I'm working on right now, a blog post. I don't know when that'll be finally published in time, um, but I can also, <laughs> exactly. To be determined. But I can also be found on Twitter at nkemekalu, and whatever blogs I have on WordPress, the good ones make it to kauriesrice.blogspot.com. Yay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And yes, I myself can be found on calvaryswrites.blogspot.com. We, yeah, we, we're always looking for kind of other people to get on because <laughs> Dr. Kalu blogs infrequently. I too blog infrequently. So, you know, for content, if you have something to say, we would love to have you. My Twitter account is at Winslow underscore R. I, I generally do China African news. I've been kind of lazy recently and just been retweeting a lot of stuff that I personally find interesting. So I haven't been as on point as I should be, but my Twitter handle is still fun, and I I and I do say some hilarious jokes every now and then. <laughs> not really. I'm I'm I'm. I don't know whether you should follow me or not. All right, that's about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Professor Park, Solange, and Vivian for joining us this morning from. Oh gosh, from wherever the heck you guys are right now, thank you. as well as. African Development Jobs in the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Blackberry, question mark. Uh, we hope to reach more media platforms in the future. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. Take care.